series, if, as it were, coming through the summer here is, is an inspiration actually from last week. For those of you that were here last week, I kind of got up and I went off a little bit. I, I, I went off note and I was just talking about what God was stirring in my heart. And here's what is, what's interesting. I was talking about intimacy with you, grow in relationship with him. And so I spoke on this a little bit before my sermon. It is online, so if you visit myevangel.church, just click sermons. You can hear it there. But after that, I had a number of people come up to me and say, you know what, last week God did the exact same. He was stirring something in me. That wasn't just you. And, and isn't that the beauty of the spirit of truth? Right? He has this way of not just pulling out an individual, because it's not about the individual. It's about the collective. It's about community. And so more and more I had people come to me going, you know what, this is what God was speaking to me. This is what God was stirring in me this week. It was, it was kind of uncanny. And so I really truly believe that God wants to do more than we have seen, than we've even asked, or we've even thought of. And so this is a continuation of that, a continuation of an understanding and a need for the presence of God. Every great revival over the past didn't start with power. It started with a few individuals hungry for more. Hungry for more to the point that they were willing to sacrifice everything to engage the presence of God. They're willing to see through the lie of the busyness of their lives and begin to engage God in a profound way. And I believe that if we catch this church, if we catch this, God wants to do something in you as individuals. It always starts with the individual. It doesn't start with the collective. It doesn't start in the community. It starts with the individual. It starts with you. It starts with you. But here's the beauty. He's, he's not just drawing you. He's drawing others as well. And so very quickly you find that you become a part of a collective. You, you become a part of a remnant, a community of faith that's hungry. And he begins to do this and he inspires others and he inspires others. And soon we become a church that's not hungry just for the power for the mission, power for getting things done. No, hungry for the presence of God. And out of that, the spirit of truth begins to do significant things. So I love sports documentaries. Anybody with me? Um, I like watching a whole lot of sport documentaries. And I'm going to make a quick switch here. I love, uh, I love sport documentaries. And, and when you watch and read, there's, there's many that I watch, but ones that I really like. I'm a big football fan. So part of that is um, I watch uh, Football Life. It's on NFL Network. And so I watch this thing called Football Life. And often it's about these players who used to play, no longer play, retired, and, and uh, they go back and look at their careers. And, and they don't just look at their careers on the field. They look at their careers off the field. And and, and there's some interesting correlations that I see when I watch these things. Um, just about everyone who's been at the top of their game, they had a few common traits. One of them's drive. They all had drive. That, that's a no-brainer, right? At, 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 you know, elite athletes, they got to have a drive. They had discipline. They put their bodies through horrible, horrible circumstances. Not just the training, but the injuries and the cortisol shots and the Man, the stuff that they do to go out on the field and play a game, only to see them afterwards and they can barely climb stairs. You know, just their bodies just put on the line, but they're so disciplined. You see just raw, natural talent. 
You know, there's these people that just genetically, they were made for athletics, you know? And sometimes, you know, you look at people and go, they're just a freak of nature. And that's what they are. Just part of it's discipline training, and then just some of it's just pure talent, freak of nature stuff. But then the other thing that I've noticed over just as watching these different individual stories is, is identity. It wasn't just that they loved the game. It was that the game actually defined who they were. And not just defined who they were to the world, to everybody watching, but so often defined who they were to themselves. To the point that you see some of these people that were at the top of their game, athletes of a generation, they retire, and then you see them go off the rails. You see them go off the rails and you wonder why in the world would this person who is just the best in their discipline all of a sudden retire and their life falls apart? Why is that? Because their identity is so caught up in the charisma and the gift and the game. And when that was taken away from them, they didn't, literally did not know who they were. And so they had this crisis, this identity crisis. Who am I? Who am I? What is my value? And I want to suggest to you that we often operate in our faith the same way. We operate in our faith much the same way. You see, when God is using us, when we're, when we're walking into his, in his anointing, when the gifts of the Spirit are flowing through our lives, we're touching people, we're lifting people up, we have words for people, we feel like, like we can contribute to the kingdom. You know what I'm talking about? Those seasons of life where just God is with you and you're doing profound things. And oftentimes, we feel in those moments like we have a deep and vibrant faith, don't we? When things are going well, when the anointing's up, we feel like we have this deep and vibrant faith, yet when we inevitably enter seasons of trials and testing and wilderness, seasons where we have very little sense of his presence with us, who's been there? Come on, church, who's been there? We begin to say things like, I don't feel like I'm a good Christian. There must be something wrong with me. What am I doing wrong, right? And we begin to have this crisis of faith in those wilderness valley seasons of our lives. And I want to suggest to you that if you're willing to shift your thinking, they discover that the time spent in the valley, the time spent in the wilderness may be more valuable to your journey of faith than the times that you have on the mountaintop. Now, don't get me wrong. Both are necessary to this journey. The mountaintop and the wilderness are both necessary, but I would put it to you today that the wilderness, the valleys of life, will more profoundly impact your faith journey than the mountaintop will. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is our main thing statement for today. Write this down. The whispers in the valley are louder than the shouts on the mountaintop. The whispers in the valley are louder than the shouts on the mountaintop. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me back into the Old Testament? We're going we're gonna to kick it old school today, back in the Old Testament. 
I'm going to get rid of this mic. I'm sorry, John. And we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to camp out there a little bit. We're going to be reading into the story about Elijah, a valley season, a wilderness season in the life of the prophet Elijah. And so if you find 1 Kings chapter 19. But before we get there, I wanted to summarize what's happened up to this point. Because a lot has happened in the life of Elijah and in his ministry. And he's just come off of this, this great mountaintop experience. So there's been a severe drought in the land. And, and Elijah, he's the prophet that gets sent by God to King Ahab. And he tells King Ahab, hey, this drought in the land that you're experiencing and that your people are experiencing are a direct result of God's judgment. Because you're a wicked king and you're not walking in the commands and the, and the statutes of God. That's essentially what he says to King Ahab. He comes to him and says, hey, King Ahab, you're a wicked king. You're not walking according to God's law. You're not walking in honor of him. And so there's this judgment upon the land, and there's a drought, and there's no rain. And so King Ahab and Elijah have this moment. And Elijah says, I'm going to challenge you to this moment on the mountain where your gods, because you're worshiping Baal, so it's a, a pagan god of the time, his wife Jezebel, Ahab's wife Jezebel, had kind of brought in Baal worship, and she had all these prophets in her house that helped perpetuate this worship and this institution of worshiping Baal in the land of Israel. And so he says, we're going to have a contest. We're going to go on the mount, and here's what we're going to do. You pray to your gods, and I'll pray to my God, and we're going to see who lights the sacrifice, lights the altar on fire. And so they go on this mountain, and many of you know this story, but some of you perhaps you don't. They go on this mountain, and so the worshipers of Baal, the prophets of Baal go first, and so they build up this monument to Baal, and they put a sacrifice, and they begin to march around it and chant and do their thing. And it goes all morning, Scripture says, and then it goes into later into the day, and, and at this point they're getting desperate, and so now they're beginning to cut themselves, bloodletting to their God, right? Things are going on, they're chanting, and they're... they're doing their thing, and, and it comes to a point where Elijah actually starts making fun of them. He goes, you know, hey, your, your God must be away on vacation, or he must be asleep, or literally that's what he says, or he must be using the toilet. That was one of the things he said. Look it up, I'm not lying. And so Elijah's just kind of, kind of egging them on and mocking them, and it comes to the point where it's just not going to happen. And so now it's Elijah's turn, and so he builds this altar to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. He uses 12 stones, that, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and he builds this thing up, and then he takes a bowl, and he cuts it up, and he puts it on the offering, and he puts wood and stacks the wood, and then he calls his servants, and he says, I want you to put, I want you to pour water over this offering. And so they take four pitchers of water, and they pour it over the altar, and then he tells them, do it again. He tells them three times to fill this thing up. And as they were building it, they built this trench. He told them to dig a trench around the altar. And so this is surrounded by this little trench. And now that it's full, it's not just a trench. It's, it's like a little moat filled with water. And the sacrifice is cooked and the wood is soaked. 
And now we come to this moment, and you can find it in 1 Kings 18, verse 36. Just this powerful moment in the life and the ministry of Elijah. And, this, and he says this, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And there's this profound moment in Elijah's life where God uses him to put the glory and the power of God on display. And yet, we see very quickly the tide turns in Elijah's life here. As we enter into chapter 19, things quickly turn. Elijah, he, he ends up killing the prophets of Baal that day. And the report goes back to Jezebel, Ahab's wife. And of course, she was pretty into this whole thing. And she was the one that brought in these prophets of Baal. And so there's this moment where she comes against him and says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. So despite having experienced the power of God, despite having seen God come through with his prayers, we enter the season now of Elijah's life where he's in a funk in 1 Kings 19. And I want to, I want to start, before we jump in, I want to start by giving you two reasons that the mountaintops of life are lacking in the things of depth for our faith journey. I want to give you two reasons. The first is this. Deep roots and substance in any relationship are not found in the good times, but they're forged. They're forged in the fires of hard times. They're forged. They're strengthened in the enduring times. Think, think of any relationship that's worthwhile to you. Though you enjoy good times together, it, it's bonds forged in the tough times that give you lasting relationship and love for that person. Um, I, I have a deep relationship with Lisa, my wife. But it's not because we had a great dating season. Although it was great. You ask her. I was probably better husband material during the dating season than after the I do's. Any ladies like, amen? Oh, no, I don't want to start that in your marriage. But, but I don't have a great relationship with Lisa because our wedding day was just fantastic. And we had the right flowers and we had the right stuff and we had our friends. And that, that's not why we have a deep relationship today. Uh, July 24th, we celebrated 15 years of marriage. And we have that relationship, the longevity of relationship. Because when life hit the fan, and let me tell you, life hit the fan. We pressed into God and we pressed into each other. When I messed up, she forgave. When she messed up, I forgave. We leaned into the tough times with God's grace and God's strength. 
And that's the reason we have a deep, intimate relationship today. Thank God for the good times. I mean, thank God for the mountaintop experiences. Thank God for those moments in relationship where you grow because you're laughing together and there's joy and there's... But thank God for the trial and the tribulation and those moments that forged your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your grandkids, with your friends. Thank God for those that stick close to a brother even through the hardest of times. Because that's where depth, that's where intimacy happens. The second reason the mountaintop doesn't give you quite what you thought it would um, now, keep in mind, there's two different types of mountaintop experiences in life. There's the summit of achievement. You know, the summit that you grind up and you work hard and you, you're disciplined and you do all the right things and you get to the top in your own strength. But the problem with this mountaintop experience is it takes us to this unfathomable high followed by this immeasurable low. Because we realize once we get to that mountaintop, whatever it was, whatever the goal was, whatever that thing was, whatever those clothes were or that car was or whatever, we reach the summit of that. And it's almost like this drug that leads us there. There's this high, there's this anticipation, there's this, if I just get to that place in my career, if I just get to that place in my relationship, if I just get to that place, and we work so hard to get to the summit. And once we get there, there's this, there's this valley that follows very quickly because we realize the summit does not give us what we were expecting it would. Or we get to the summit and we realize that was just a little mountain. That was just a little goal and there's another one in the horizon that's bigger and better and more shiny. The mountaintop just doesn't sustain us. I took a season out of ministry because... In ministry, uh, early in our, our years, Lisa and I, oh man, we were, we were poor as church mice and all of our anxiety and all of our problems were around finances and, and I was, I was, we were both pastoring and I just was hitting the fan and I was not taking care of myself and things were, things were just hitting the fan for me personally in just horrible, horrible ways and I thought, you know what, all of my issues are about money, all of my stress is about money, I'm out of here. God, you can have the ministry, get someone else to do it, I'm going to go make money, and if I make money, that's my summit. If I reach that summit, everything's going to be okay. All of those anxieties and all of that stuff that I, that's killing us financially, it's going to be okay if I can just reach that and so quit ministry. Move my family to, to northern Alberta and made money. I made good money. I just had to work. I was making good money, and so Lisa could stay home, and we just had Kaylee at that time, and and make good money. We'd go into the city just about every single weekend and buy stuff and whatever. Can I just tell you? Worst season of our lives. Worst season of our lives. We reach that mountaintop and we realize very quickly that it did not have what we thought it promised it would give. And this is why we become slaves to this endless pursuit of replicating the mountaintop experiences. And the problem is that that mountaintop experience is only a precipice to a very quick valley 
again in our lives. The second mountaintop, the second kind of mountaintop, is, is the mountaintop of faith experience. Okay, the mountaintop of faith experience. Those moments and seasons and times when you powerfully experience God in your life, those moments when he uses you in powerful ways to accomplish the impossible, and we all long for these moments. There's nothing wrong with these moments. But what becomes wrong is when we begin to look at our journey of faith and we feel like we require that these moments be sustainable over time for us to be a good Christian. And so we begin to go after those teachers and those leaders that inspire us and seem to just always have it all together. Or, or, or we, we start chasing the conferences and the moves of the Spirit all over North America. Or we, we do whatever we can do. Or, or we say things like, if I can just get to church on Sunday, everything's going to be okay. If I can just get to that experience with other people that are just so much better in their faith, and they always seem to have it all together, and they always seem to be on this perpetual mountaintop, I can just get around them. I can learn how to just stay there. Let me let you in on a little secret. Nobody stays on the mountaintop. Nobody stays on the mountaintop. And so we have to put the mountaintop in perspective to life. In Jeremiah 17, 8, it says this. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's Jeremiah 17, 8. There's something powerful about the person who realizes that the river flows in the valley. The river flows in the low places. There's a sustaining in the low places. There's a sustaining, there's a place in the mundane places of life, in, in, in the normative places, the normality of life, if we pursue God and put our roots down deep. The whispers in the valley are louder than the shouts on the mountaintop. So let's get back to Elijah. He has this incredible mountaintop experience where God shows up in a powerful way and a nation witnesses it, right? The king witnesses it. And like many of us, we, we, we've had these experiences. For Elijah in this moment, the outcome isn't what he expects it to be, right? What did he expect? He expected the nation witnesses the power of God, the king sees it, and then what happens? Everybody repents. This is kind of like the, the anti-story to Nineveh and Jonah, right? It's almost like Jonah and, and, and Elijah are kind of juxtaposed here. Whereas Nineveh repented and Jonah got upset about it, Elijah wants them to repent and they don't. In fact, King Ahab and his wife threaten his life. Who's been there? You've walked in that mountaintop, you've walked in the power of God and you have preconceived idea of what the outcome was going to be like and it didn't happen the way you thought it should who's been in that valley instead we read in first kings 19 verse 1 and he says ahab told jezebel all that elijah had done 
and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, all the prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, may God strike me dead if I don't kill you in 24 hours. Then he was afraid, Elijah was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. You know what's interesting about the valleys of our life so often? You know, it's a, it's a quick statement there, and I, I didn't notice it until actually this moment. The quick statement at the end, and he left his servant there. Isn't it interesting that in those valley and wilderness seasons of our lives, you know what our first temptation is? It's to isolate. Right? It's to isolate. To push everybody that loves us, everybody away from us, so we can have our pity party alone. We begin to isolate. Depression, we begin to isolate. And so he leaves his servant, and now we find him alone. And sometimes the outcomes of our mountaintop experience with God don't turn out the way we think they should. And at times we live in the valley of our own making. We live in wildernesses of our own making, where we had a better plan, where we walked in faithfulness and we walked in obedience and we didn't see what should happen. What God, don't you see this? This is what should have happened. This is the outcome that should have happened. And we live in these wildernesses of our own design. And what's ironic is there's been so many times in my life where I'm shaking my fists at the heavens only to realize later that I was in a wilderness and a valley of my own making. Of my own making. It's a great question to ask when you find yourself in those seasons of life. Is this a valley of my own making? Is this a valley of my own making? So often in this life, we put ourselves in the situations that we want to blame God for. And in verse 4 it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. <laughs> saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my fathers. Have you ever been there? God, just take me now. Right? And I don't say that as a trite thing because many of us have been there. Where we enter those valleys and those deep places of the soul where we're so broken and so robbed of perspective. And we walk through deep depressions that blanket out the light of the future, remove the hope of something yet to and leave us in these valleys and these seasons. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've, you've, maybe you've harmed yourself. Maybe you've thought about just ending it all. Let me tell you, the story's not over yet. For someone here today, maybe you need to hear this. The story's not over yet. Because in these valleys, in these moments, like Elijah, we find Elijah in, and he just wants to die. He doesn't realize that he's been robbed of perspective. 
And God's going to reignite a perspective for him. He's going to take him on a journey towards something of hope and future. And God always does this if we're listening. Verse 5, and he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. I mean, I've gone through a season of depression in my own life, and I can tell you, I can attest, all you want to do is sleep. (laughs) But to be away from people, dark rooms, and sleep. He lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Too often we, like Elijah, believe there's no way of escape from the deep valleys of life. We pray things like, God, you may as well take me now. Some, some of you, perhaps, you've had thoughts of suicide and, and self-harm, and the valley can have a way of, of, like I said, robbing us of perspective, robbing us of any sense of future, any sense of, of something coming yet to come in our lives. But we, what we see here is an angel shows up, and he feeds Elijah and gives him water. And for 40 days, Elijah is in a state of dependence on this nourishment that God has given him through his angel. And for someone here, you need to hear this, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give in to the limited perspective of the valley seasons of your life because there is a greater perspective than what you're seeing or not seeing. Sometimes it's engaging community again where you can have people come along you and show you a new perspective and a better perspective than the unhealthy one you're walking in right now. But there's also a God and a creator who loves you who will sustain you and will give you perspective and will lead you on a journey out of that valley to a place of normal, to a place of, of hope, to a place of peace. Notice the angel's words to Elijah. He says, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. (laughs) I don't know, maybe not the most encouraging words in that moment, right? Elijah already feels like he's got nothing to give. And then the angel comes and says, hey, rise up and eat, because the journey is too great for you. But it's a reminder that there is a grace and a strength that you don't possess that God gives you to make it through if you turn to him and simply seek him. When we press into God, we begin to realize that the whispers in the valley are louder than the shouts on the mountaintop. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left, 
and they seek my life to take it away. Okay, this is a picture into Elijah's perspective in this season of his life. And here in this moment, we, we see that Elijah is so upset with God because the outcome of the big mountaintop experience is not what he wanted it to be. And here's Elijah saying, woe is me. He's throwing himself a big pity party. But here's the beauty of the grace of God. He presses through. He presses through, even through a pity party. He presses through even through our depression. He presses through. He presses in. He engages us. He doesn't run away. He doesn't isolate. He doesn't get awkward like sometimes our friends get awkward, right? Who's ever been there in a season in a valley, a wilderness of your life where you just have no hope and you don't know what's going on and you're just so upset and you have friends that just kind of awkwardly, they don't know what to do with you, right? So they're there for you, but they're kind of like, Maybe you, you walk through loss. And, and let me tell you, can I just put it out there? If you've had loss in your life and you're grieving a loved one, let's just, let's just be gracious to one another. Everybody is awkward around that. Because we don't have anything to say. What are we going to say? When someone's gone through a tragedy in their lives, what are you going to say? Don't say anything. Just engage. Be in proximity. Draw close. There's something powerful about God drawing close in this moment. And in verse 11, and he said, this is God, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. What is God doing here? He's teaching Elijah something about intimacy with his creator. He invites Elijah into a much more profound relationship. I want you to consider um, your reaction to, to God when he manifests himself in power. Just, just put yourself for a moment in that mountain. Uh, there's, a, there's a movie called The Hobbit. There's this part where they're going through this mountain pass, and who's ever seen this that's... Uh, it's kind of this scene where they're walking through this mountain pass and all of a sudden these giants rise up and they're big rock giants and they're hucking rocks and the rocks are smashing everywhere. That, that was my picture when I read about God passing by and the wind just, just so picking up boulders and rocks and smashing them against the mountain. Just, just think about your reaction, right? Especially as Pentecostals, right? Especially as charismatic Pentecostals. Just, Woo! But God wasn't in the wind. And then an earthquake comes. Right? What does an earthquake do? It shifts and it shakes and it cracks the foundation. And God is doing something significant in Elijah's life. He's cracking and breaking down some of the preconceptions. And this earthquake comes in power and it moves the earth. And God's not in the earthquake. And the fire comes. And the fire is always representing the presence of God, especially during the daytime. 
right? Pillar of fire by night, sorry, by, by night. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day always represented the, the, the glory and the presence of God going before Israel. And so Old Testament, here we go, fire, God's not on the cloud. And then this whisper comes. And in that moment, Elijah covers himself with his cloak. He kind of protects himself from the presence and the glory of God as this whisper comes. All those other experiences, I mean, they can be encapsulated in one word. The word would be power. Power. And yet God wants to teach something to Elijah about intimacy and relationship. Verse 12 says, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And I want you to consider with me a whisper. I want you just to, to consider it's, it's low, it's quiet. It, it requires kind of intention upon the hearer to hear it, right? But, but I want you to think more than just I want you to think more than just the, the, the tonality of a whisper, the frequency of a whisper. I want you to consider this. What's the position of a whisper relationally? Right? What does a whisper look like in body language? Right? A whisper looks like this. That's the only way a whisper is useful. I mean, it's not useful from here. I want you to just think about the imagery of a whisper. I want you to think about your valley experiences. I want you to think about those hard times and those moments, and maybe you're there right now. And here's what God does. He doesn't get all awkward and weird around your tragedy or around your valley or your wilderness experience. He leans into it. And with deafening noise, he whispers profound truth into your circumstance. Come on, friends, that's powerful. That's more powerful than the winds crushing the rock more powerful than the earthquake moving the earth, great upheavals. It's more powerful than the fire that came. God himself leans into Elijah's valley and whispers. And what we see is Elijah ends up walking out of that valley with purpose, with a mission set before him, and with a renewed faith to carry it out with a, with a faith to carry it out. For some of you that are in the valley, you need to hear this. Your valley season is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to grow in your faith, to grow in perspective, to grow in relationship with God. 
But it's also the prequel to greater things if you make the decision not to camp in your valley. Right? Set up camp in your pity party. Some of us live in a perpetual pity party. We have to make a decision to engage God when he comes to us, when he speaks to us, when he speaks over us. The whispers in the valley are louder than the shouts on the mountaintop. The story kind of ends, verse 15. And the Lord said to him, to Elijah, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of uh, Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to, be the, uh, anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, God leads Elijah out of the valley experience into a profound and lasting impact. He gives them a mission and a plan to carry out. And we see this theme throughout Scripture. I mean, last week we, we did water baptism, and I, I preached about Jesus' water baptism, this moment where, this, this grand moment. Some could say it was a mountaintop moment for Jesus in his life. He's baptized, and the Father comes and splits the skies and speaks over him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And a dove representing the Spirit of God falls on him and empowers him for ministry. And then what happens right after that? He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into a valley experience. This theme over and over and over again. But I want you to notice something. He ends by saying, well, um, in verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. I want you to consider what Elijah has already told him, right? Elijah in his pity party tells God, I'm the only one left. Right? That was Elijah's perspective. That was his broken perspective. That was his limited perspective. That was his depression and his angst and his anger speaking. He was robbed of all perspective, and God comes and says, hey, by the way, kind of ends with this moment. By the way, there are 7,000 that have not bowed to Baal. You are not alone. And he renews this perspective to Elijah. And I can just hear the matter-of-factness in God's voice as, as he gives Elijah this fresh perspective. And there's two reasons this is so important. The first reason is this, and I really believe this, and I've talked about this before, but I really believe this. We see this theme throughout Scripture. And we see this theme throughout the great revivals that we've seen over the years and over the history of the church. And it's this theme, the 7,000 in Israel, that's not a lot. I mean, at this point, there's, there's, there's millions of people. So 7,000 is, is not a great number, let's be honest. But there's a reason this is so important, because all God needs is a remnant to turn the tide. 
All God needs is a remnant. All God needs is a few that have not bowed their knee to the gods and the idols of the world, but engage him and know him and are intimate with him. All he needs is a few. And the second is sometimes in this culture today, we can feel like Elijah. Right? We can feel this angst within us, like I'm the only one. Sometimes we can feel it sitting in the church. But let's be honest. Sometimes we feel like we're sitting in a church surrounded by people that love Jesus and love God, and we go, I'm the only one really pursuing him. I feel like I'm the only one who's desperate, is doing whatever it can take. I feel like I'm the only one. We need to be reminded that the very things that God is doing in your heart and your life and stirring in you is not isolated just to you. But he's doing it and he's raising up a remnant. He's raising up a few that will give everything they have to the presence of God. He's at work. He gives us perspective. The whispers in the valley are louder than the shouts on the mountaintop. Don't begrudge your mountaintops. Enjoy them. Celebrate them. But don't look to your mountaintop experiences of faith or life to sustain you. Because they just won't. The only thing that will sustain you, it's not a person, it's not a movement, it's not any of those, the only person that will sustain you is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the Spirit reveals to that to us. And I don't know where you're at, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come at this time. And I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know where you're at in circumstances. Maybe you're visiting us from out of town and you just happen to be here. I, maybe this is your first time stepping into a church and you're exploring faith and wondering what this all is all about. We're so glad that you're here. But we need to prioritize some things. In our Pentecostal faith, in our Pentecostal journey as a movement, particularly in Canada, there's been seasons and moments where we chase the power, we chase the gifts, we chase the prophetic, we chase the healing, we chase I believe God's calling us to put down that pursuit and simply pursue his presence. Because he's the source of the gifts. He's the source of the power. He's the source of the manifest presence of the Lord. He's the source of those mountaintop moments that we're all desiring. We all want revival. We all want revival. And so often we pray for revival like it's this thing that's going to happen, right? Like if only it caught with the people sitting in the front here and then we can kind of join into it, right? That moment where, where it's just going to catch and we're going to just 
kind of get caught up in the tide of it, and then God's going to change me. Then something's going to happen in me, and it's going to be so significant that I'm going to start reading my Bible every day, and I'm going to start digging into prayer and the presence of God, and that's going to be the thing. That's going to be the impetus. That's going to be the catalyst. That power, that movement is going to draw me in. I'm just waiting for that to happen. And until that time, I guess I'm just stuck being a nominal Christian. Yet God invites us with a whisper. To be disciplined. To dig in to his word. To hear his voice. To engage community. Not in a superficial way. Not in a, how you doing, brother? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed, brother. I'm good. I'm no, not in that garbage way. We're done with that. Can we be done with that? No, in a way that we're real and we're vulnerable and we invite people into our wilderness experience only to learn that they're going through their own and we walk and we hold one another up. And we pray for one another. We lift up one another's heads. We engage the presence of God. And I believe those little things, turning our hearts, those little things of pursuing just a little bit of God in our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays, our Thursdays, our Fridays, our Saturdays. That God will raise up a remnant that'll change the world. Change this region, certainly. Come on, church. Change this region, certainly. to change the province as we invite people into presence not just power power is important I'm not saying power is not important the manifest gifts of the spirit are important it's just not the main thing so why don't we stand together and we're just going to take a moment to worship Disengage God. Again, we pray that prayer. Rise up, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Maybe for some of you, you just need to, you don't feel like it. Because <laughs> you're in the wilderness right now. Maybe you just need to just surrender, lift up your hands. Maybe you just need to be quiet. Right? The whisper, the whisper requires us to be intentional about leaning in as well. Let's lean into the whisper. Let's lean into the voice of the Spirit today. So Holy Spirit, come. Have your way, in Jesus' name.